Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. And I'd like you just to think back over your recent past, the past one to five years. Have you experienced significant change in your life? And significant change along the area of loss. Have you experienced significant loss? So think about that. While you're thinking about that, I'll ask you, is anybody familiar with the title, Who Moved My Cheese? It's unfamiliar. This is the title of a business book that came out about 20 years ago. But it's based on a story. And the story is about four characters who live in a maze. Two of the characters, Scurry and Sniff, are mice, and two are little people. So there's these two human beings that live with two mice. Uh, The two human beings are called Hem and Haw. And everything is going well for them because they found this big source of food, a big block of cheese. And so much so that they decided to move around the cheese, and they lived there. So they would get up, and they would just go and eat the cheese. And it was going very well. But then one day, they noticed the cheese was getting smaller and smaller. Until they got up one day and it was gone. And this was tragic. But when the cheese was gone, uh, Scurry and Sniff decided to move on. They just went deeper into the maze to find another block of cheese. But Hem and Haw were devastated. They, They just couldn't believe that the cheese was gone. And they starved to death because they just, they, didn't, they just couldn't believe. They felt that they were somehow uh, fraudulent activity had taken place. Somebody had stolen something from them, and they were so upset. They stayed in place, and they died there. And it's a metaphor for dealing with change. And that's what I want to talk to us about today. I want to encourage us to accept change, that nothing is as permanent as change. And there is this illusion of permanence that everything sort of continues from one day. Today is a lot like yesterday. And tomorrow might be a lot like today. But slowly, slowly, things are changing. And then one day we wake up, and it's totally different. Slowly, slowly, and then all at once. We as Christians need to be prepared for change. And we need to accept change when it comes. Just this week, I understand our national anthem has been changed. It's no longer in all our sons' command. It's now in all of us' command to be gender neutral. It says here that conservative senators were furious that Manitoba Senator Don Plett, who has long opposed the bill, was not able to speak in opposition to such a motion. So there was no debate over this. They said that this was an affront to democracy to use these time-limiting motions to silence the opposition. One of them says, when a majority of individuals decide to shut down discourse in this place, democracy dies. We need to be very wary of tools that muzzle debate. So democracy, the argument here from this senator, depends on debate. 
debate. Depends on the, the clash of ideas. And what we're seeing are these movements to shut down debate, shut down dialogue. There's no, the, the idea of you have one opinion, I have another, and that we come together and dialogue over our differences of opinion, this is going away. So the changes that we are facing, not just in our personal lives, as I would maybe consider these micro-changes, though significant, these would be micro-changes, we're also facing macro-changes. Big changes that are sweeping the world that will affect us. Turn to Proverbs 22 as we begin. You know, daily we're inundated with gender issues and transgender issues, same-sex marriage, the, the distrust of authority. We're seeing drug addiction and, and the acceptance of drug use. Uh, everybody has access to pornography. We're teaching pornography to our young children through sex education. Our world is changing. You know, the idea of a Christian society, this is going by the wayside. In Proverbs 22... And I appreciate the uh, opening scripture, Psalm 1, totally relevant to what we're covering today, and the opening hymns. In Proverbs 22 and verse 28, Solomon gives us advice here, and he says, Remove not the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. And, and our society is doing everything it can to remove this ancient landmark. And so this, this uh, scripture of wisdom is telling us it's good to hold on to the ancient landmarks. They were set for a reason. And so we have moral landmarks that have been set that we are abandoning. And, and we as Christians need to be very aware that we are the target for this. We are the problem. We are the ones that are trying to hold on to these ancient landmarks, and our society doesn't want them. They just doesn't want them at all. And so there's tension now and conflict now between the leaders of Western society and Christians. So I want to talk about these macro changes in society and, and specifically a, a, a move called postmodernism. I want us to define and make sure we're all, and I've talked about this before, but I just want to make sure that we go over this again so that we're clear on what it is. So I want to define it, give a little bit of context for the history of it, explore the implications on us as God's people, and talk about you know, three steps of what we should be doing. How, how do we live in such a fast-changing world? Postmodernism. It's really the third phase, I would say it's the final chapter of mankind's history. The first chapter is referred to as pre-modernism. The second chapter as modernism. And this final chapter as post-modernism. These terms have to do with the definition of reality. How do we define fundamental reality? Pre-modernism says it's supernatural. 
you, you have to go to a supernatural source in order to understand reality. So in the pre-modern world, everybody was spiritual. Everybody believed in gods or a god. And that was the source of truth. In modernism, there's a pivot. The pivot is away from the spiritual realm as the source of truth towards the rational realm. That the source of truth is through inquiry and it's through logic, reason, evidence. So modernism is evidence-based. If I can't see it, touch it, and rationalize it, then it's not a source of truth. All, all truth can be proven. And so with the wave of modernism, which I would say really began with the ancient Greeks, but culminated and really became definite in the Middle Ages. Modernism gave rise to the scientific mindset. And in a sense, in the age of modernism, God was pushed out of the picture. There's no place for God in a modernism mindset. However, there's a place for God in the sense that in modernism, individuality matters. The individual matters. In the pre-modern world, it was the collective. In the modern world, it shifted to the individual. So you have a right to believe what you want to believe. You want to believe God? That's up to you. It's foolish, but you have a right to do that. We want scientific proof for truth, and we want evidence for truth. Around the 1960s, 70s, is when we entered pre-modern world, sorry, the post-modern world. So post-modernism came to fruition in the 60s and 70s. And this is what we need to understand. This is a new world. So the, the elite, the academics, are post-modernists. All of the graduates who go through university today and graduate with any of the humanities uh, courses, programs, are being fed postmodernist thinking. And so they come out of the academic institutions, they go into leadership roles, and they are totally consumed by postmodernist philosophy. And I think this is something else that I would want us all to understand, is that philosophy is not a subject that you study in school. You know, if you're so inclined, I think I'll take philosophy. Philosophy runs the world. Philosophers run the world. Society runs off of the brain power of philosophers. And so for each era, we need to understand who are the philosophers that are defining reality. Because this is all about what is real. So where pre-modernism says the source of truth is the supernatural. And modernism says the source of truth is inquiry, it's science. You have to inquire and look and investigate, find evidence for, and develop a hypothesis and prove it to be true. That's the source of truth. Postmodernism 
says there is no truth. There's no such thing as truth. That truth is a social construct. Truth is something that powerful people who are running society come together and decide what's convenient to them. That's truth. Postmodernism, where modernism depends entirely upon logic, postmodernism says logic is nonsense. Logic is a, is a tool of the powerful. What matters is emotion, how you feel. This is what matters in postmodernism. Where the individual mattered, your opinion, your perspective, in a modernism framework, this matters. You have a right to your opinion. And we can debate and talk about it and try to convince each other of what is true. In the postmodern world, the individual doesn't matter. No one cares about your thoughts as an individual. What matters is the group that you belong to. So this is where you hear the term, you might hear the term identity politics. That depending on your identity, that's the political stance you must have. So here in 2018, if I'm a black man, of course I believe in Black Lives Matter. Because all black people think exactly the same way, right? And if you're a woman, you must be a feminist. Because all women have exactly the same thoughts. And how dare you step outside of your group? So the individual means nothing in a postmodern world. We should be concerned about this move, not to say that modernism was wonderful, it wasn't, but it's much better than what's coming. And what modernism brought us, sort of the defining shift that modernism brought us, was the Enlightenment, which was, again, the power of logic and reason and science. So it brought us science, all of the engineering feats, the technology feats that we see, uh, the medical world that we have, all of this is coming from the modernism worldview. That had we had stayed in pre pre-modernism, we would not have any of this. But what it also brought us was the sacred rights of the individual. The fact that we can just walk down the street and if anybody were to harm us, they would be brought to justice. You're not allowed to do that. You can't just harm somebody just because you feel like it. The individual matters. And so this, this is very good development. What it also brought was the right for the individual to own property, to own a business, to have freedom of thought and freedom of movement. And it is this modernism philosophy that has fueled the Western world. My wife and I were watching a documentary the other, last, yesterday on deserts and, and just how people survive in the desert. And it is just amazing to see 12-year-old, 10-year-old people having to make big life-and-death decisions in a desert and walk for you know, 100 miles to find water. And it's life or death. One mistake and it's the end. 
And this sort of backward way of living is the way most of the world was until modernism, until the Enlightenment, until the pursuit of science and technology and the rights of the individual. And look what the West has created. I'm sorry if I sound racist. Well, I'm not sorry, but I'm not racist. No one in their right mind is leaving Western societies to take their families to go to the East, to say it's better. You know, I'm going to upgrade my standard of living by going to the East and the Third World. It's the other way around. All over the world, everybody wants to come to the West. Why? Because of modernism. So now, the West, and that's another thing to understand about postmodernism, it doesn't have an opinion about the rest of the world. Its opinion is that the Western world is evil and must be destroyed. And, and its whole basis is that the West must be deconstructed. Meanwhile, there has never been, let, let's just take America, we could talk about Canada, but let's talk about America. 242 years old, there's never been an empire that has blessed more people as much as it has in such a short space of time. Yeah, tons of things we can say are terrible about America and Canada and Britain. But let's just look at the, 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 the lens, through the lens of the whole human story. If we compare America to utopia, it's terrible. The Western world is terrible compared to utopia. But since utopia has never come, no one has ushered in utopia. Let's set utopia to the side and compare the Western world to every other society that has ever been any time throughout the history of mankind. And this is the best we have ever seen. And yet this is what we want to destroy and tear down. This week, kind of going around, a bit of a meme, our prime minister, virtue signaling and interrupting a, a young We'll call her a Christian woman. It's really, she's part of a cult. Uh, but she was asking about charities, and she wanted to see what the government could do because their church does a lot of charity work. And she said, you know, this would be good for all mankind. And she didn't get to finish her question before the prime minister interrupted her to say, we say person kind. Person kind. This is what we call virtue signaling of the postmodernist. This is a, like, this is a big deal. And we should see it for what it is. This is postmodernism changing the language. Basically saying that to say mankind, this is exclusive. This is, this is part of a power politics. You're, you're upholding the patriarchy, male patriarchy. And we need to challenge you on that. So we say person kind. Isaiah 1. Let me just pause a minute and ask, um, so far so good, I'm trying to be as clear as I can. Uh, is there anything that's not clear, that needs a bit more explanation? It's, it's clear? Okay. This is, um, postmodernism, let's just call it the destruction of the West. That's the agenda. So let's, let's not be fooled by this. This is, this is not an advancement. This is going backwards. 
in Isaiah 1 and verse 2, the prophet writes, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. What has the Lord said? I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. So, so God himself has nourished and brought up children, and this is what they do. They rebelled against him. The ox knows his owner, and the donkey his master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. And I don't know if anybody's been around a cow lately, but they really do look like stupid creatures. They, they don't have the brain power of a human being. And yet God is exalting them above human beings, above his own people. The donkey as well. O oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. This is what we're facing in the nations of Israel. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. So postmodernism is about going backward. Why should you be stricken any more? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. And so, you know, when the head is sick, there's no reason to be courage, courageous. There's nothing to fight for. If we were to go to war today, I would be surprised if anybody were to fight valiantly. There's nothing to fight for. We don't believe in our country. We don't believe in our values. Why would we fight for this? Just roll over and let the enemy take over. You know, when you look at the courage in World War II, these people were fighting for something. They were willing to shed their lives so that we could have something. This is gone. The head is sick and the heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. Completely unsound but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. We can just watch verse 7 unfold right before our eyes. This is what happens when you have no values, as a society, you don't stand for anything. You don't care about your land. This is what's going to happen. But drop down to verse 18, where God himself says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What I want to highlight here is that the creator himself says to mankind, let's reason. God puts value on reason, on dialogue, on debate. You have an opinion which is wrong. Let's talk it through so that you can come to truth. So in this, modernism has some value. In that modernism puts a high value on reason. I mean, they reject the supernatural, but they put a high value on reason and on logic. And this is what we're leaving. This is what we're abandoning. We have a society today 
It's a society, or it's becoming a society, of hysteria and outrage. I don't want to talk to you about your opinion. I just want to be outraged. And I want to riot and tear things down and shout and scream and cry, but I don't want to reason. And there's a reason for this. The other thing to understand about postmodernism is that it is a form of Marxism. It is an expression of Marxism, or it is a tool. That would be a better way of saying it. It's a tool of Marxism. Marxism is a part of modernism. So Marxism came to his, or Marx came to his pinnacle and Marxism in the modernist age. And so the theory of Marxism is actually a theory of science. It's a scientific theory. It's social science. And it's all about logic. It's about analyzing the West and the capitalist world and looking at socialism and making logical arguments as to why socialism is superior to capitalism. This is Marxism. In this age of, or in the age of modernism, you have the ologies, psychology, sociology, biology, all of these ologies, because the fundamental philosophical premise is that logic matters. That we will get to the reason why of life, of, of how the mind works, through logical analysis. So Marxism is a form of sociology. It's a science. It's a social science. The need for postmodernism comes from the failure of Marxism. Marxism has been a colossal... It's not possible to fail any greater than Marxism has failed. For all its talk of utopia, everyone that has indulged in it has only brought slaughter and torture to its people. There is no example of Marxist utopia. Although, it, great rhetoric, but in practice... It's nothing but slaughter, mass rape, and torture. That's what Marxism is. This is what happens when you give the government so much control over its subjects. So by the 60s, no Marxist had any credibility. You, you could not be credible as a Marxist in 1960 to say, I believe Karl Marx was right. You'd be laughed to scorn. In, in fact, you would be seen as criminally minded if you believe in Marxism. After all the evidence, remember, modernism is about evidence. So everybody that has tried this, it has, it has been worse for its citizens than war. If you, it's just been destructive. So for you to say you're, you must be an immoral person to be a Marxist after 1960. Enter the postmodernists. So two in particular, I've mentioned them before, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, they came to their fruition in the 60s and 70s. And their purpose now is to say, logic doesn't matter. When you say to me, where's your evidence that Marxism works? My answer is, evidence doesn't matter. When you say, can you logically prove why Marxism is better, 
My answer is logic. That's a tool of the powerful. That's a tool of oppression. We don't need logic. I just feel that it would be right for the world to have utopia. And I feel this very strongly. You want to use logic, that's oppression. So this is a a, a trickery. And yet the world is accepting it because the global elite are Marxists. They are immoral people. They are people that want power over others. And Marx, for some reason, and I haven't figured this out yet, but for some reason, Marxism, it just gets a green light for everybody who wants totalitarianism. There are other forms of totalitarianism, but for some reason, Marxism is the, is the flavor. I always going to say flavor of the month, but it, it's just the flavor. For some re- I don't know why. Maybe you guys have ideas, but for some reason, Marxism is the one. And what postmodernism does is it protects Marxism and promotes it without having to prove it because there's no proof for it. Let me just talk. Well, let's go to Colossians 2. You look at every socialist nation, it's been a disaster. You look at every capitalist nation, and it is far superior to anything socialism can bring, despite all its flaws. We care about philosophy because God tells us to. In Colossians 2 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Beware! You don't read over beware. When the Apostle writes beware, you you stop. And you say, wait a minute, there's something to be aware of here. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. That's what postmodernism is. It's philosophy and vain deceit. And it's how we get spoiled. Philosophy is the battery that powers the human mind. The human mind doesn't work without philosophy. You need a narrative. You can't interpret the world around you without some kind of narrative. And that's what philosophy is. So beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So the source of truth is Christ. We're studying this in the book of John. Christ is truth. But philosophy, or other philosophies, want to take us away from the source of truth. So beware. Just briefly, Michel Foucault, these are masterminds. These people have intellect that very few people have this level of intellect. But Michel Foucault was insane. He was actually committed to an insane asylum. He was fascinated by the subject of power and how human beings become subjects or subjugated. His strength was that he was a historian. And he would, he would deal with what he called the archaeology of social constructs. So what his, his trick was to take anything we believe to be true and to go through the archives of history to show that the opposite was believed at one time. And because the opposite was believed at one time, there was an evolution into our current belief system. 
So if our current belief system evolved from the opposite, then it's a social construct. And so this is a very powerful mechanism to get very uh, elite thinkers on board with his type of thinking. This guy is renowned. You go into universities, and you're going to give a presentation, and you start off saying Michel Foucault was just such a wonderful thinker. Right on. You're, you're, you're with the program. They, they just have great regard for him. He really explored, his focus was to explore and challenge the limits in society around insanity. What is insanity? Who are the insane? Who's really insane? And to look at how the insane are treated by society and to push the limits, to say that it needs to be normalized. His other area of focus was sexual depravity. And he wanted to explore all or, or the unlimits, no limits around depravity. In fact, he died of AIDS, having spent his life in, or part of his life in San Francisco, pushing the limits with drugs and sexual depravity. And this is the leader of our society? This is the thinking that runs our society? Look at John 5. Throughout the halls of academia, Michel Foucault's name is renowned. And our future leaders are coming out wired by this man's thinking. And I acknowledge this is a very, very intelligent man. Very, very intelligent man. Clearly a devil. Clearly a devil. John 5 and verse 40. And you will not come to me, verse 40 of John 5, you will not come to me that you might have life. This is, he's, God, God is speaking to the Jews here, but he's speaking to all mankind. If his own people won't come to him. So here, you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from men. And certainly that's the case today. You go through academia and mention Jesus Christ's name, you're laughed to, to scorn. I receive not honor from men, but I know you, that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, let's say Michel Foucault, him you will receive. So they'll receive an insane, depraved, sick individual, and they'll honor him, but they hate Christ. Something's wrong here. And this is, this is what's running our society. The other gentleman, Jacques Derrida, was fascinated by language. And his purpose, is, he was really focused on deconstruction. And in a nutshell, uh, his push was that text, any text that you read, has multiple interpretations. That there's no one interpretation for any text. And that interpretation is a power game. So whatever, you could be reading Hansel and Gretel. However you interpret that, this is about power. So therefore, text means nothing. It means what we want it to mean. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Humpty Dumpty and The Looking Glass. This is a novel that was written about uh, or with Humpty Dumpty as one of the characters. And there's a really in interesting exchange here between Humpty Dumpty and Alice, who, of Alice in Wonderland. She's asking him about a present that he has if it was a birthday present. 
And Humpty Dumpty says, no, it's an unbirthday present. So she doesn't know what this means. So it says this from the looking glass. I mean, what is an unbirthday present? A present given when it isn't your birthday, of course. Alice considered a little. I like birthday presents best, she said at last. You don't know what you're talking about, cried Humpty Dumpty. How many days are there in a year? 365, said Alice. And how many birthdays have you? One. And if you take one from 365, what remains? 364, of course. Humpty Dumpty looked doubtful. I'd rather see that done on paper, he said. Alice couldn't help smiling as she took out her memorandum book and worked the sum for him, 365 minus 1 equals 364. That seems to be done right, he began. She, he goes on to say here, As I was saying, that seems to be done right, though I haven't the time to look it over thoroughly just now. And that shows that there are 364 days when you might get unbirthday presents. Certainly, said Alice. And only one for birthday presents. You know, there's glory for you. I don't know what you mean by glory, said Alice. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, until I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That's all. This is a very powerful passage. This, this captures the spirit of postmodernism and Jacques Derrida and deconstruction. That I will make words mean whatever I want them to mean. And it's almost like the author here is giving us a hint of deconstruction. But that's what's happening today. Words are being redefined. And this is what George Orwell warned us about in 1984. Let's move on to the implications for us. What does this mean for us in the church? We're going to go to Isaiah 5. You're turning there. I think most of you saw this um, clash or this uh, contest, if I can call it that, between Jordan Peterson and Kathy Newman on uh, BBC, on Radio 4, Channel 4. That's significant. That's significant. This is no small clash. And there's a point where he, he uh, pushes her, or she's pushing him, and he pushes back on her and says, well, what gives you the right to make me uncomfortable? You're certainly doing that. And she's thinking she can't answer. And he says, ha, gotcha. And she says, yeah, you have. Because she's saying that no one has the right to make anybody uncomfortable, yet the whole interview is her making him uncomfortable. And so in his calm way, he just, put, he just calls her on it. And she's stuck. And the whole kind of Twitterverse and YouTube comments and social media just lit up. It's a big deal. That moment is a big deal. Because this professor, who's a very intelligent Toronto professor, turned the postmodernist narrative on its head. 
he caught her. And, and but part of this is what George Orwell spoke about in 1984. He talked about the concept of doublethink, a word he used to describe the capacity to, to, believe, to believe two conflicting pieces of information at once. So all societies are equal, but Western society is really evil. Like Either all societies are equal or they're not. How can all societies be equal, but Western civilization is really evil? This is what George Orwell was warning. And this is exactly what um, Jordan Peterson, he studied, his adult life has been studying totalitarianism. So when the University of Toronto was forcing him to use these pronouns, Z and Zer, he refused. And they were like, you will be prosecuted. He, I don't care. You're not forcing me to use those pronouns. And it's a little thing, but to him it's a big thing. He says this is the tip of the iceberg. This, this is how totalitarian systems get ushered in through changing the language. And so he refused. We need to have this type of courage and awareness. And I'm afraid that in the church we're just not as aware or as courageous as this man. We can use him as a good role model. Look at uh, Isaiah 5, where the prophet writes in verse 18, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin, as it were, with a cart rope, that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. Verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. So this is not new. It's just in, in vogue now. But God is quite aware that this is what men do. Redefine words, redefine concepts. What's good is evil, what's evil is good. Which means, by the way, that if you want to follow Christ in this postmodern world, you are evil. You are evil. And that's what Kathy Newman was trying to do, was to paint Jordan Peterson as an evil person. And he just outsmarted her. But that's what's coming. When it says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, the followers of Christ will be evil. The followers of devil will be good. Woe to them. Woe. This is a curse. That put darkness for light and light for darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And so we know from Revelation that the devil deceives the whole world. And this process that we're going through, this postmodernist process that we're going through, is a part of the devil's mechanism to deceive the whole world. This ability to change the language, to say that it's, a, it's you know, terms, everything, the, the way you interpret any text has to do with who's in power. So therefore we have to overthrow male patriarchy, specifically white male patriarchy, so that we can be free to interpret any text the way that we want to. <laughs> What's coming? Well, let's go to Revelation 13. Yeah, it just to me, it, it, um, it concerns me. I was going to say it angers me. Maybe it disappoints me is a better word. When brethren are supporting these postmodernist concepts and they just don't see what they're doing. Like, hello, can we open our eyes? Because the Bible says, woe unto him that calls good evil and evil good. So if we subscribe to this, the curse is on us. And I can't believe when 
people fall victim to this, and they, they're participating in trying to destroy the Western civilization, which is built upon Judeo-Christian principles. So what will come once we tear this down? Revelation 13, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. So there's some totalitarian system that ended. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. So evil is good. Evil should be worshipped. Evil should be exalted to the point where they exalt the dragon that gives power to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So no longer individuals thinking. But now the, the virtue signaling is how great and holy this beast is, this man is, how wonderful he is. Let's all agree together that he's, he's wonderful and to be worshipped. And anybody who resists him is evil. And notice verse 5. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. So these human beings who are exalting this beast are agreeing with his blasphemies. This is, this is where postmodernism is taking us. This is a tool in the devil's tool belt that is leading us to completely swap out the ancient landmarks with landmarks that are unproven and that are evil. Jude 3. This week I was uh, facilitating a workshop with uh, some leaders, and one of, the exam- one of the exercises I like to do is to call for people who have experience, even expertise, in, in Lego, if they played with it as a child or they use it with their children. And so there's always a few volunteers that will put their hands up. And so I take them, and I give them a Lego set, the smallest we can find. This one had 88 pieces. And I say, with your expertise, can you go and build this Lego set and then come back and present the Lego set to us? And I say, and while you're doing this, I say to them, pay attention of your group dynamics. How do you establish leadership? How do you engage in cooperation? How do you get things done? And so they go off and they do that. The people that are left, I put them into two groups, and I give them the same Lego set. What the experts don't know until they go out is that I've removed the instructions from the package. And so all they have is the picture and their expertise. And then the people who are left who are not experts, they have the instructions. And so they follow step by step, and they put the model together. Usually what happens is the experts come back, and it's a mess. They cannot figure it out. And like, hey, you're experts. What happened? Uh, and then they get distracted because I tell them to focus on team dynamics and leadership. And so they're all ready to come back and talk about this. But that, that's not the point of the exercise. Uh, but this group was very smart. Uh, while they were out there, and now I have to upgrade my examples, uh, they downloaded the instructions from the Internet. <laughs> So they were out there for about, they said, six or seven minutes, and they were just struggling. And one of them, who's the expert, said, why don't we just go online? And so they downloaded the instructions, and they did it, and they came back. And we all had a good laugh. But in future, I'll, I'll be careful about that. But we have instructions, brethren. 
And it doesn't matter how clever we are. If we abandon the instructions, then we're up, we're, we're up to our own devices, and it's going to be a mess. We're not going to quite get the pieces in the right order. If we follow the text, we're fine. We, we, we could be really dumb, no brain power at all, against the Michel Foucault and a Jacques Derrida, and we're fine. Because the experts have put their expertise in the instructions. And so people with no ex expertise or even experience with Lego can put together a perfect set because the expertise is in the instructions. And so we can defend ourselves against the Jacques Derrida's and the Michel Foucault's and all of these brilliant, brain power, insane, depraved people if we follow the instructions. Jude 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Remove not the ancient landmarks. Earnestly contend for it. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. So this would be like a red flag. When we're told you can do whatever you want, engage in whatever lasciviousness you want, red flag. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. There is a risk, brethren, of us being seduced by postmodernists. Remember, these are clever, clever people. They're subtle, they're intelligent, they have a very clear purpose, and they're out to deconstruct us. We better not dabble. We better not find ourselves mixed up in their agenda. We need to stick to the instructions. In 2 Corinthians 10, And verse 3, the apostle writes, speaking of this battle, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So, so we are human beings, but we are not at war with human beings. They're at war with us. We're not at war with them. So we can see beyond the human being. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This, this is what we're engaged in. This is the battle we're engaged in, to spot these strongholds and to pull them down. You know, my, my, my uh, son, is, uh, he loves to do uh, wall climbing, and he's quite agile. And the importance of having a small foothold or a small little crevice where you can get a finger in. It's critical. That makes all the difference as to whether or not he can scale the wall. And so for us, it's that small toehold. It's that small place where a finger hold can be made. That's how the devil can scale and gain progress with us. So we're, we're not fighting on this level. We've got to see with spiritual eyes. Where are the openings? Where are the cracks? And shut out the devil. We're not fighting with humans. 
no matter how intelligent they are. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Oh yes, disobedience will be avenged and we will be a part of that. Make no mistake, this is not, oh yeah, everybody's great, everybody's lovely, everybody's righteous. God is righteous, and God's judgments are righteous, and we want to be on God's side. Okay, let me, in the time we have left, just talk about three things that we need to do to survive what's coming. The whole world is being turned upside down. And and everybody loves to have it so. Number one, die with the Lord. Die with the Lord. When we die with the Lord, we let go of everything. The leverage that the devil has over us is what we want. Whatever you want, the devil has leverage over you. But if we die with the Lord, we don't want anything. If we understand that the Lord died to redeem us, he bought us for a price, then we're the Lord's. Whatever he wants for us, we're happy with that. And now the devil has no power over us. Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The postmodernists would love for us to have this philosophy. That it's okay to sin. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And so every year we keep the Passover, and we show the Lord's death, and we study the Lord's death, we need to understand this, because we were baptized into his, we need to understand what we were baptized into. We were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So dying with Christ brings a freedom. So we lost everything when we died. Everything that we have is a blessing. Every day is a blessing. Every person in our life is a blessing. And we give thanks. I don't deserve anything. So I give thanks for everything. As opposed to, this is mine. And then when someone takes it away, who moved my cheese? And I'm all upset. 
I don't own anything. And you don't own anything. Everything we have, let's enjoy it and give thanks. I think, you know, these young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when suddenly they're seized and they're put before this fiery furnace, they were dead already. And so the threat had no power over them. You don't have any power over a dead person. These men already died. And so if we die to Christ, the devil has no power over us. Number one, die to Christ. Number two, keep our eyes on the big picture. The devil wants us to take our eyes off the big picture and get into this sort of micro way of looking at things. Look through a microscope rather than a macroscope. Right? We need to be looking through the macroscope. Keep our eyes on the big picture. Second Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians 11, in verse 13, he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers. Imagine that, being labeled a deceitful worker. It means that your work is deceit. You're, you're a tool of the devil. And you get every, up every day and you use your intellectual abilities to deceive. Such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So this is their day. In our day, these deceitful workers are going to transform themselves into philosophers, into academic leaders, into political leaders who have our best interests at heart. If only, if only I could bring you the utopia that Karl Marx wrote about, then everything would be good. So support me. They're deceitful workers. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his servants also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end is according to their works. But look at, let me just drop down. This is a great passage to read, but look at verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. So Paul's having to defend his ministry and say, I'm more of a servant of Christ than they are. In labors, more abundant. And again, this is about keeping the big picture. Why would Paul do this? Because he never lost sight of the big picture. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, often. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes save one. So that painful scourging, he received five times, 39 stripes. Three times was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often. So he's constantly journeying. It's not like, oh, hop on a plane, go to Miami, uh, get snacks on the plane and come back. This, this kind of journeying was treacherous. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. 
in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Why would Paul subject himself to this? This is like a fraction of this is enough for somebody to say, look, I, I give up. Enough. He kept plowing forward to the point where he could say, I've, run a good, I've, I've finished my race. I've run a good course. He never lost sight of the big picture. And if we're going to get through what's coming, we cannot lose sight of the big picture. Number three, and we've been talking about this, we must discern and love the body of Christ. We will not survive what's coming if we cannot discern the Lord's body and if we do not love the Lord's body. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. So he's not in his glory right now. He's in his glory in heaven. He's not in his glory on earth. We're here on earth as his body. And we are, we are the offscouring of the earth. But he's coming. And when he comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and all the postmodernists will be there. And he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father. So we want to be in this category. So note to self, be on the right hand of, of, of Christ, not the left. How do we be on the right hand of Christ? Note to self. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when, saw we, when did we see you hungry? And fed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king shall say unto them, Truly, I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these my brethren, discerning the Lord's body, you have done it unto me. And then he goes on to speak to those who treated his body regretfully and again they did it unto him so we have to discern the lord's body and and not discerning the lord's body is no excuse these people have no idea that they're dealing with the lord's body and yet they're punished so as we conclude this pre-modernism phenomenon that is sweeping the western world it's the final chapter it's about destruction it's about pulling everything down and handing everything over to our enemies. There was pre-modernism, which everybody believed in the gods and all the idolatry that we read of in the Bible based on pre-modernism. There's modernism, which is again a rejection of God, but it brought the enlightenment 
and the value of logic and the value of the individual. And that's why we as Christians could function under modernism because the right of the individual was sacred, even though it was anti-Christic. And now we've entered into postmodernism, which is totally, clearly anti-Christic. There's no room for the individual. Who cares what you think? And there's no such thing as truth. So get ready. As, there, as more and more people embrace this underlying philosophy, its root is hostility toward Christ and hostility towards those who put on the name of Christ. So three things that we can do as we fight for the truth and we want to stand when the wrath of the Lamb comes. Number one, die with Christ. Die with him. Do not insist upon your rights for anything. We have no rights. We have the privilege of being called Christ's. And so everything that we enjoy, we give thanks because we don't deserve anything. We deserve death. And so we give thanks for everything. Die with Christ. Number two, keep the big picture in mind. That's what Paul did. When you look at what he went through, he was just kept going because he saw very clearly when Christ comes, the new world, the real world, the eternal world, and his role in that world. And number three, discern and love the body of Christ. So we've had this big cheese in the Western world that we've been feeding off of for a long, long time. It's called freedom of thought and freedom of choice and the sacredness of the individual. We're going to wake up one day, and that cheese is gone. You no longer have freedom of thought. You no longer have freedom of speech and freedom of choice. And your rights as an individual mean nothing. We cannot be so shocked that day, so panicked, that we will now do anything to get back our privileges. We died a long time ago. We died at baptism. And we look forward. So we're not going to be surprised when the cheese is gone. Let's conclude in Psalm 15. In Psalm 15... These are the attributes that we are fighting to develop. This is why we have the weapons of our warfare. It's to develop this against the resistance of the devil and his servants. Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? So Christ is coming and he's going to dwell with man. The question is, who will dwell with him? He that walks uprightly and works righteousness. So there's a working of deceivableness. There are deceitful workers. We must not participate with them. We must not cooperate with them. We must resist them. And don't allow it to creep into the church. And speaks the truth in his heart. And, you know, Jordan Peterson is not called today, 
but boy, oh boy, does he present a good role model. What he was subjected to, I believe every minister in the church of God will be subjected to. And, and hopefully we can give a hope for the, a reason for the hope that lies within us with such uh, cleverness, uh, as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. Speak the truth. Don't let people bully you into having an opinion. Have your own opinion based on the scriptures. And speak the truth that's in our heart. He that backbites not with his tongue. This is the work of the devil. We don't do this. Nor does evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. We're talking about who will dwell with Christ. We have to fight ourselves. We have to overcome ourselves to develop these attributes that enable us to dwell with the Lord. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. Woe unto them that call the good evil and the evil good. So Michel Foucault is a hero. Jacques Derrida is like God. Not to us. These are vile people. And we condemn them. And we condemn their thinking. We condemn their philosophies. And we exalt Christ. But he honors them that fear the Lord. He that swears to his own heart and changes not. To his own hurt and changes not. He that puts not out his money to usury. So this is all about the oppression of the poor. And that's what these totalitarian systems are all about. We don't want anything to do with the oppression of the poor. Don't put our our money to usury to enslave people. Nor takes reward against the innocent. He that does these things shall never be moved. So our cheese might be moved. But we will never be moved. And look at the next psalm, Psalm 16 and verse 7. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So this world is topsy-turvy. It's changing rapidly. So we're now 2018. Uh, We've set 2025 as sort of the get-ready year. Because after 2025, in in our vision as the ministry, We're like, we've got to prepare ourselves for the post-2025 world. That's seven years away. I think by 2020, we're going to be here amongst each other, shaking our heads at how much the world has changed. But not panicking. Because we cannot be moved. So Humpty Dumpty, you know, he can expound his great philosophies as he sits on the wall. But we won't forget how the story ends. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. And so this is collapsing, and it will never be put together again. But we shall not be moved if we die with the Lord, keep the big picture in mind, discern and love. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.